Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Butty. Washington today is Thursday, November 24. And here are some of the stories we are covering. Calls for a West Africa regional force to combat rising jihadist militant threat. I think it was rethinking the 1990s uh, type of intervention in Liberia and Sierra Leone for the region, led by Africans with African forces. Nigeria's bid to expand oil exploration in its north. Some Zimbabweans need food aid despite a bumper wheat harvest. Police clash with refugees at overcrowded Malawi camp. Amnesty International calls on African Union to expedite the establishment of a hybrid court in South Sudan. It also applauds the Tanzanian's decision to drop murder charges against members of the Maasai tribe. It is the right step. We say a right step in the right direction, but much needs to be done because we should not have been arrested or detained in the first place. And it's Cameroon and Ghana's turn to take the field at the Qatar World Cup today, Thursday. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. A political analyst says now is the time for the economic community of West African states ECOWAS to revisit its regional security policy of the 1990s when it sent troops to Sierra Leone and Liberia to help end civil wars in those countries. In the early 1990s, ECOWAS sent the Economic Community Ceasefire Monitoring Group, also known as ECOMONG, peacekeeping force to Liberia and Sierra Leone. The intervention brought some stability to those countries. Analyst Ibrahim Khan says ECOWAS should rethink the ECOMONG collective security policy to curb the growing jihadist threat in the Sahel region, especially in the wake of the withdrawal by some Western countries of their forces from the region. This, as some Sahel border countries have been meeting this week in Ghana to discuss the rising Islamist militant threat to the region. Analyst Ibrahim Khan tells me the Accra summit may have come a little too late. For many, many years, many people were asking for an involvement of ECOWAS in the Sahel situation, in the different conflicts that are happening on the region to really make sure that uh, ECOWAS is in control of the processes and ECOWAS is really sending forces to protect the population of these countries. But nothing happened and everything was in the end of uh, the G5. And as you know, the G5 now is no longer in existence. That's why Ghana decided to organize a meeting between its president and the president of uh, the neighboring country to discuss the situation in the Sahel region. That's one. Two, I think the meeting should have not just been limited to those countries. Because in my view, there are many other countries that can contribute to the safety of the region, such countries like Senegal, who can play an important role because they have a very organized army. They are already involved in the UNISMA in Mali. They should have been also involved in this conversation. So the Ghanaian president, uh, Nana Akufuado, is talking about a homegrown initiative. What do you think he's talking about? What form would it take? Well, in the past, I think we had a very positive experience in the 90s where during the civil war in Sierra Leone and Liberia, Nigeria, under the leadership of uh, Sani Abasha, we all know that Abasha was a, a dictator, 
but at the same time, he was a dictator who was really concerned about the security of the region. And Abasha not only did, under the leadership of uh, ECOWAS, organize uh, an intervention in the region, but even the, the, the funding of the intervention was also done by Nigeria. So I think rather than countries dealing with their own security alone, it is important maybe through the leadership of ECOWAS, countries contribute to fund, you know, forces that will go in Mali, in Niger, in Burkina Faso, to really help stop, uh, you know, the advance of these groups that are being linked to Al-Qaeda or linked to many other terrorist groups. I, I, I think it was uh, rethinking the 1990s uh, type of intervention in Liberia and Sierra Leone for the region. It's really that type of intervention that I'm looking forward to, led by African, with African forces. Do you think uh, the wave of uh, military takeover in the region, do you think that is uh, helping or contributing to the terrorist uh, situation in the Sahel? there is no military government. In Mali and in Burkina Faso, of course, uh, the coup that happened there, instead of uh, really helping the army to stabilize the situation, has even worsened the situation. But I believe that if we want to end what is happening in Mali, in Burkina Faso, in Niger, we need a collective undertaking, a collective action. Ibrahima, thank you. It's, it's always very nice to talk with you. Thank you for your analysis. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. Ibrahima Khan is a political analyst. He was speaking with us from the Senegalese capital, Dakar. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari opened the first oil drilling site in the country's north on Tuesday, saying it will bring energy security and economic development. The fresh source of oil comes as Nigeria's production ranking has dropped from Africa's top spot due to the theft of oil in the Niger Delta. Nigeria's state oil companies as the northern coal mining fields could hold as much as 1 billion barrels of oil, but analysts question whether locals tend to benefit. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The Kolmanu River field is located between Bauchi and Gombe states in northeastern Nigeria, a region that has been battling Islamist militants for years. It's the first time Nigerian authorities have turned to another source of crude oil outside the Niger Delta region. Crude oil was first discovered there by the privately operated NNPC Limited in 2019. President Buhari said at the launch Tuesday, the Kolmani River field holds up to 1 billion barrels of oil reserves, about 14 billion cubic meters of gas. The president said the new project will include upstream production, oil refining, power generation and fertilizer production. He said it already has attracted $3 billion worth of investment. Buhari spoke in a televised broadcast during the launch. This discovery had emanated from our charge in NPC to re-strategize and expand its oil and gas exploration footprints. Similar activities across the other basins are currently actively ongoing. The project is expected to produce up to 50,000 barrels of crude oil per day. Buhari said the project will benefit locals through job creation, energy security, financial security and community development. 
Nigeria now ranks seventh on the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries Crude Oil Production List, according to the group's November oil market tally. Authorities blame massive theft in the Niger Delta region for the decline and have been trying to boost production. Emmanuel Afimia, the founder of Enermix Consulting Limited, says past mistakes made in the Niger Delta region must be avoided this time round. The government should have learned from that and then be able to provide or create an enabling environment for um, people residing in that community to actually earn a living. So which means that they have to provide the infrastructure that would make it um, uh, such that the drilling activities in that area would not affect um, the source of living of the people. Afimia says the new drilling project needs more investment to be able to contribute significantly to Nigeria's oil output. Nigeria is hoping to achieve net zero emissions by 2060 using gas as a transition fuel. Buhari has urged NNPC Limited and its partners to ensure harmonious relationships with host communities. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Despite a bumper wheat harvest, Zimbabwe's government says the number of people facing food insecurity in the country is growing. Authorities released figures this month showing the number of people who are food insecure is set to double to 3.8 million by the next harvest. Columbus Mavunga reports from Buhera, Zimbabwe. 69-year-old Rosta Charuma is one of 3.8 million food insecure Zimbabweans who need food assistance at least until her next harvest of corn and groundnuts in April. She lives with her husband and three grandchildren. She says here there is hunger which is real and painful. We eat once a day. We don't eat to fill our stomachs but just to ensure that Kids do not faint at school. They usually have porridge with no sugar. They are now used to it now. As for bread, I do not know when I last ate it. Zimbabwean authorities have loaded a bumper harvest of wheat, a 13-month supply, which officials hope will lower the cost of bread. The price has risen to more than $1 since Russia's invasion. Of Ukraine. But the Buera Royal Council says investments must be in corn, the country's step crop, instead of just wheat, which is beyond the reach of many. Wisdom Jiri is a Buera Rural Councillor. He says, I wish Zimbabwean leaders would look at Buera district which has erratic rainfall and introduce irrigation schemes. The community would have food security. The UN World Food Programme in Zimbabwe says, with funding from the USAID, it is importing maize from neighboring Zambia to rural districts and hopes the bumper wheat crop harvest will lower inflation. Francesca Eldman is the WFP Zimbabwe director. Rural areas, the, um, the communities are very much dependent on the consumption of maize. Uh, and the last agricultural season, unfortunately, the maize production 
uh, especially in those kind of uh, rural communities, did not do so well because of the rains being very scattered during the season. So although the wheat harvest is great for the country, uh, we do not really see or we do not expect that it will be having a, a major impact on rural communities. According to the latest World Bank report released in October, Zimbabwe has the highest food inflation rate in the world at around 350%. That is one reason why people like Rosta Charuma say they are no longer eating bread and are hoping corn production can help them survive. Locals say with a good irrigation plan, they can produce enough corn to sell and make enough money to buy bread and other food items. Kolamas Mavugam for VOA News, Wera, Zimbabwe. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, November 24. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Amnesty International is applauding the decision by Tanzanian prosecutors to drop murder charges against 24 members of the Maasai, including 10 of the tribe leaders. The group was arrested in June while protesting an attempt by the government to seize their ancestral land for conservation purposes. But yesterday, Wednesday, Tanzanian authorities abruptly dropped the charges without explanation. Roland Ebola is the regional researcher for Amnesty International. He tells me the government made the right decision by dropping the charges. However, it should not have arrested the Maasai in the first place. It is a right decision, one, because they were accused of a crime that we believe they did not commit. They were charged uh, with conspiracy to murder and murder charges, the 24 of them. And it is very absurd that 10 of them who are leaders of the community were arrested a day before the murder incident happened. Because if you recall, when security forces uh, were in Yondo evicting a Maasai community from their grazing land on 10 June, a policeman was killed uh, during the confrontation between community and uh, security forces. And so you can imagine that 10 of those who are in custody from 9 June were actually being charged with a crime that happened a day after they were arrested. So it is the right step. We say a right step in the right direction, but much needs to be done because they should not have been arrested or detained in the first place. Our state should start considering compensation for you know, victims of wrongful detention and unfair trials. Do you know why the government decided to drop the charges at all? No. When the state entered uh, what they call a knowledge prosecute, the director of public prosecution does not have to give any reason. And so what the director of public prosecution has issued was that he was not interested to pursue the matter further. I would like you to know that the 24 were among 27 who were being charged with the same offenses, and uh, three of them had been released or discharged in the same way in July. In that case, the prosecution said that uh, they were being released on humanitarian ground. One of them was a high school student, 
and another one was a PhD candidate. The land in question is uh, traditional Maasai land. Is it true that the government was trying to protect it or to preserve it? It is really interesting that uh, the government says it wants to preserve or conserve that wildlife because at the same time the government is giving licenses to private companies uh, to do trophy hunting and uh, lodging for tourism activities in the state land. This land, which is 1,500 square kilometers, is part of a 4,000 square kilometer land that the Maasai had been allocated as village land when they were relocated from Serengeti National Park in 1959. At that time, the state had said the same thing, that they are actually relocating them for conservation. So the state gave them land, and this has been land that they've used uh, since 1959 as grazing land for their livelihood. And the state comes and says that, you know what, we are fencing it off and you cannot access it. Roland, thank you so much. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Jim. Roland Ebola is the regional researcher for Amnesty International. He was speaking with us from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Amnesty International has released a report ahead of the African Union Peace and Security Council meeting on South Sudan on November 30th. The study calls on the continental body to speed up the process of establishing an independent hybrid court for South Sudan. The court, manned by a majority of jurists and prosecutors from African countries other than South Sudan, would have demanded and jurisdiction to investigate and prosecute war crimes and other offenses under international law and relevant laws of the Republic of South Sudan, including sexual violence. Jaffe Bigan is Amnesty International's Africa Regional Advocacy Coordinator. He tells viewers Nabil Biajo that a successful hybrid court for South Sudan would set a precedent for an African-led justice across the continent. When the Peace and Security Council meets next week, we are calling on them to do at least three specific things. One is to ask the African Union Commission to speed up the formation of the court by finalizing adopting and publishing the court's statute. Secondly, to decide the seat of the court as provided for in the peace agreement of 2015 and 2018. And then finally, to put in place measures to recruit essential staff. Uh, Essentially, the African Commission uh, should identify key staff that need to be recruited as soon as possible to start working remotely uh, before the court is fully established. Why is it important to set up a hybrid court for South Sudan and how would it work in practice? So the importance of setting up this hybrid court for South Sudan is really for justice and accountability for the grave human rights violations and abuses that have been committed uh, in the conflict since 2014. We are in the ninth year since the conflict started and we know the extent of violations includes uh, killing of civilians, sexual violence, displacement, and forced recruitment of child soldiers. Yet accountability and justice for these violations have not yet occurred. Therefore, the Hybrid Court for South Sudan will be really, really important in terms of fighting impunity. It is really impunity that has driven the violations and abuses that we have documented in that country. But even more importantly, uh, beyond dealing with the question of impunity, the hybrid court will be a great step forward in terms of providing redress for victims and survivors of these violations. Uh, some people say the topic of justice could potentially rock 
the boat because we have a fragile arrangement where a delicate piece is holding and is being implemented. And the hybrid court could potentially implicate some of the leaders on different sides of the conflict who are implementing the peace agreement right now. What do you say to that? And there is always a false dichotomy that is drawn between truth and justice, and we have seen that in the context of, of, of South Sudan, that uh, justice may rock the boat, as you say. But we as Amnesty International believe that truth and justice are actually complementary. They both play important roles. Truth processes, like the one that has been considered now in South Sudan, is important in terms of finding the truth and giving victims and witnesses an opportunity to express their experiences. But justice is also equally important, especially for perpetrators that bear the greatest responsibility for violations and abuses. Jafet Bigon is Amnesty International's Africa Regional Advocacy Coordinator. He spoke with viewers Nabil Biajo. Africa is looking forward to its first victory at the Qatar World Cup from either the Black Stars of Ghana or the Indomitable Lions of Cameroon, who will be playing in their first group matches today, Thursday. Cameroon will play Switzerland in the first match of the day, and the Black Stars will take on Portugal and Cristiano Ronaldo in the third match. Yesterday, Wednesday, Morocco drew nil-nil with Croatia. On the line from Accra, Ghana, is viewers Jackson Vunganyi. Good morning to you, Jackson, and welcome to Daybreak. Africa. Good morning to you, James. We are all excited because of the World Cup and you are in Ghana where the action for Africa is uh, taking place today, Thursday, when the, the Black Stars take the page. What's the situation there? Well, Ghanaians are very excited and they're looking forward to their first matchup today against Portugal. Uh, Portugal is a, a European powerhouse. They have one of the best players in Ronaldo, but that is not phasing or scaring Ghanaians. The supporters of the Black Stars say that they know that their team has a chance. And looking at some of the matches and the surprises we've seen in this World Cup, I would not be surprised if uh, the Black Stars came away with a win. But this will be very much a repeat of the 2014 matchup of the World Cup between Ghana and uh, Portugal, where Portugal won by 2-1. to one. So there's very much a relationship here between these two teams. But Ghanaians are very confident that they are going to beat uh, Portugal because they need this win to kind of give them the confidence. Apart from the loss of uh, Senegal, the performance of African countries in this World Cup is very impressive. Tunisia played to a draw, and now, along with Ghana, Cameroon is also playing on Thursday. How are they looking at the, the performance of African countries in this World Cup there? You know, the performance of African countries has surprised many people. Even soccer analysts did not anticipate or forecast this type of performance. But, you know, this probably is uh, Africa's year at the World Cup. For the Black Stars coming into this competition, last weekend they played against Switzerland, which is a great team, and they were able to beat it in a friendly match. And that, again, gave them the confidence that they do have a chance. And, you know, as all the other teams have not won as yet, they are thinking that maybe Ghana, this today is the day when Africa uh, grabs its first win and they're all looking at the Black Stars. When I first came here a couple of days ago, there was a cautious optimism. They're like, you know, the team is young 
young, they're kind of fresh faced, they don't have the same experience as uh, Portugal and some of these other teams. But after watching what has been happening this World Cup, they're like, maybe our boys have a chance, maybe our boys can do it. And that is the energy they're taking into this World Cup, into their first matchup. Well, Jackson, maybe the Black Stars in Africa. We might be lucky, especially with uh, Ronaldo's problem with Manchester United. Maybe when he comes <laughs> with that, when he comes with that kind of energy in his in his head. Because remember, this this is very much a physical sport, but it's also very much as a mental sport. And you know, with all the drama that has been surrounding Ronaldo, maybe this is a, a time for the Black Stars to exploit that moment and <laughs> catch them when they're kind of done, when their big man is still is down, is down. Jackson, thank you so much again. Uh, hello, let's wish uh, the Black Stars good luck and we'll check with you again after the game. Thank you so much, James. Good to talk to you. That was viewers Jackson Vunkanyi speaking with us from the Ghanaian capital, Accra. And that's it for this Thursday, November 24th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guests this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton Washington saying, have a great day and be safe.